John 17. Now, one thing that I just want to say about this, this this is the third message from this chapter. And I intend to just focus in on verses 20 through 26 today. But But I want to read the whole thing. And I just want us to think about this. Here is the Son of God. He is in the shadow of the cross. Now you recognize what that means. It means that what He experienced and we saw expressed in Psalm 22, He knows this. That's why He sweat as it were great drops of blood. This is right before Him. He's facing all the horrors of the wrath of God. He knows what lays ahead. And here's the thing. Think about you. Think about you. If you were going, like some in past days in this country who professed the name of Christ, they were burned at a place called Smithsfield in London. Anybody ever heard of that? Can you imagine if you were sitting in a prison cell and you were going to be burned tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And we could take basically this many words of your prayer. What would you be praying for? And what would be the emphasis of that prayer? You know what's interesting about this? Is Jesus in this very place where in a very short order He is going to be facing trial, punishment, crucifixion, God forsaking him. Yet, notice this. It's kind of like Psalm 22 where you get there and all of a sudden he breaks out thinking about his brethren. You know what? Out of this whole prayer, only the first five verses are devoted to him. The remainder are requests for his followers. That ought to blow you away. That's the kind of high priest we sing before the throne. We're singing about our high priest. This is the kind of high priest we have. So let's start, just for the sake of context, let's read the first 18, 19 verses before we jump into 20. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life. You know what? Jesus doesn't only have authority to forgive sins, as we heard earlier today, some of us. He has authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. And this is eternal life. This is what he has the authority to give. An intimate knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So now he is done praying for himself. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. 
And they have believed that you sent me. And we see it. I am praying for them. Oh, but not only, I'm not only praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. But he's not only praying for these, and that's what we're going to get to today. That's the gist of, of, of the emphasis of these last few verses. Verse 10, all mine are yours, yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. You want to get that? Verse 11 says, Holy Father, keep them, that they may be one. Verse 12, I kept them. I guarded them, or I kept them, it says a second time. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but here it is again but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, here's where we come in. And there's a massive shift here. I do not ask for these only. The these is the eleven. There were twelve disciples. Judas, we know what happened to him. Jesus mentions him here. But now Jesus is praying for these eleven. Very specifically, from verse 6 through verse 19, he's been praying for these eleven. And if things stopped right here, we'd, we would probably question whether we even had a part in this. But verse 20 makes it very clear that it's not just for these 11. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You've given Me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, I want to remind you, we are listening 
to God speak to God. And we are being allowed to listen in. This is unlike anything that you would hear if you were listening to two people talk to each other of the humankind. Who talks like this? This is God talk. And what I really want you to recognize here is our Lord is not commanding you and me anywhere in this chapter to fight for oneness. Now look, you can go over someplace like Ephesians chapter 4 and you can see that there is a place for us to fight for unity in the church. But what you need to recognize, sometimes you get the feeling that people quote John 17 as a way to say, see church, there's so much disunity in the world, we need to go out and hold hands with everybody. We need to fight for this unity. That's not what's happening here. This whole chapter is never an appeal to you and me to fight for unity. Now look, there may be a place for us to fight for unity. I'm not saying there isn't. But what you need to recognize is that what Jesus is doing is not, there's not a single imperative here. There's nowhere that he's telling us to do this. You have to recognize what this is. This is the Son of God lifting his eyes up to heaven and asking his Father to make this a reality. Can Jesus not be heard by the Father? Do you think Jesus can pray something and that his prayer not be answered? Brethren, what you need to recognize is this is an appeal of God the Son to God the Father to keep this a reality in His church. We just need to start there. He prays here that this oneness that already exists, because what does keep, keep them in your name? That they may be one. Isn't that what verse 11 says? Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Keep them. You see, it's something that's to be kept. He's, he's implying here that this already exists among his people and that he's praying the Father to keep it, continue it, preserve it. That's what you have. And like I said, there's a big shift in 20. Now, there is an also. Oh, brother and sister. We are the also's. You see that? This may be one of the biggest also's in our Bibles. Just what I want you to do is imagine this. Imagine a group of the most favored people. I mean, imagine you have the Prince of Glory and he has these people and they're even apostles. I mean, imagine that. Apostles. Wow, we think, you know, you just go, look, you go online and look at pictures of these supposed guys and they got like halos or something around their head. I mean, we always look at, oh, St. Peter and St. Paul. But imagine, imagine these guys. And what you have is the most privileged people on the face of the earth. And what the Son of God, this Prince of Glory, is speaking into the ear of His Father and He's saying concerning this little, very privileged group of mankind, Father, I want You to pour out the greatest blessings imaginable on these people. 
I want you to keep them. I want you to bless them. I want you to give them the greatest riches imaginable, the greatest benefits, the greatest privileges. And imagine, this prince says, and Father, I also want you to give it to that guy. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on here. You want to be in that crowd, folks. Because if you're not in the also's here, you're on the outside. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's the, the greatest thing in the world, the greatest thing among all of humanity is to, is to have Jesus look at you. Like, like you think about Matthew. Oh, I think about Matthew all the time. Can you imagine sitting in his tax collecting station? The guy's just all miserable. And he's, oh, he's got money, but he's an outcast of society. And there's just an emptiness in his heart. And he's tried all the stuff money can buy and probably all this sex and partying with all of his sinners. And, and there's just this emptiness. And it's like Jesus is passing by. And it's like you also. It's like, I'm in, I'm in. I mean, can you imagine anything better than that? So here's a question. I have two questions, basically, I, that I want to ask. And the first one is this. What's true of these favored ones? I mean, as we really focus in on verses 20 through 26, I can tell you all sorts of stuff are just coming at us. And it's like, what is this? I mean, who talks like this? Undoubtedly, it's glorious altogether, but it's just so much that there's, I mean, there's, we, we just have to, we have to pick through it a little bit of a time, and then all I'm going to do is scrape the surface. But what's true of these favored ones? Well, look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also. There's our also. So this includes you and me in this place. If we fit the description, it speaks to us. And what is the description of these people that he prays for also? Here it is. Here's the first. Those who will believe. Now, you know what's interesting? There's a verb there. Future active participle. A participle is usually a word that ends in ing. So, you might say this. It's basically those believing on me in the future. That's the tense. That's the kind of verb that it is. You know what? They haven't yet. But they will. When Jesus was praying this, they hadn't believed yet. Now, they might have been alive like Paul, but hadn't believed yet. And they might be like us who weren't going to be born for 2,000 years. But the fact is, they hadn't believed yet. And Jesus sees an entire people through all of time everywhere around this world, you know what he sees? He sees a people who will somewhere, at some time, what's going to happen to them? I mean, something's going to happen to them. They're going to have an encounter with what comes from the mouth or comes off of the pen. They didn't have pens like this in that day. Of the apostles. That's what he's saying is these 11 guys, they're going to take all that I taught, they're going to take what I did, 
And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon these guys and they're going to be the guys that bring this message to the world. And you know what? It doesn't matter whether it happened the next day or whether it was going to happen. We don't know how long this age is going to go on, but you can get all the way to the end of the age. And you know what? Still, if you have some of these favored people that Jesus is praying for, guess what? This word is going to be preserved until the last of God's people is brought in. Why? It has to. Because those are the ones Jesus is praying for. They've got to come across What's written in this book, listen, the New Testament is coming from 11 men or others like Luke and Mark who were close to these guys and heard their teaching firsthand and actually were the amanuensis or, or basically they're the guys with the pen in their hand and they heard dictated to them by the apostles, but they took this and they wrote it down. That's what you have here. God makes believers through their word. Folks, apostolic doctrine, the whole Christian faith is based on the teaching of the apostles. You know what? The apostles were not asked to draw up their own message or draw up their own opinions. Notice verse 8. This is, this is backing up a little bit in the chapter, but notice, notice verse 8. I've given them the words that you gave me. You see, they didn't dream this up. This isn't their own message. Jesus didn't send them out in the world and say, guys, just, you know, make something up or give it your best shot or whatever. No, no, no. And you know what? Believing the divine revelation handed to us by the apostles is life and death. Absolutely. The apostles did not believe these things lightly either. They saw it firsthand. They experienced it. They announced to the world real historic facts. These are realities. They themselves were a part of and had observed. You ever read 1 John? You ever read the first few verses in 1 John? John says, you know what? We didn't dream this up. We touched him. We heard him. We were right there. We got close. We know this. This is factual. Folks, this is critical. Absolutely critical. Why? Because it's no, there's no hearsay here. There's no opinions. There's no myths. No conjecture on their part. God, you know what? These guys were willing to die for this. You don't, you don't just dream something up and be willing to die for it. Or you don't go steal his body out of the tomb and then be willing to die for it. But you know what You know what there are? There are always these people at a distance. The apostles weren't at a distance. But you know what? You always get these people that come along at a distance. They're far away. They're, they're way back there. They didn't witness Christ firsthand. Who want to say, no, it didn't happen that way. I mean, you know what? We get Muslims down in the city center all the time. No, it didn't happen. That God didn't have a son. Jesus didn't make atonement on the cross. Where were you? I have it on the testimony of 11 men and the men that were close to them and heard what they taught that these things are factual, these things are historical. And you were where? Now you see, folks... What use is it for someone standing off at a distance to argue that Christ is different from what the apostles say he is? Well, folks, it's of no use. These guys know. They know firsthand. I mean, the fact is, what do we know about Christ? I mean, yes, you get some prophetic utterances in the Old Testament, but what do we really know about Christ that wasn't uttered by these men? We know nothing. These are the guys. And you know what? You know what was said to them? Jesus said, I'm giving you the kingdoms. He said, I'm this rock. Oh, I know the, the Protestants like to argue about that because of what Catholicism does to it. But look, all you had to do is go to the 
Go to the book of Revelation and it says that there's 12 foundation stones to this city. And what are they? What are the foundation stones? Well, it's the apostles. These 11 men and those closely associated with them, they communicated words that convey certain truths that if you believe them, really believe. I'm not talking some casual thing or I'm not talking where you claim to be a Christian and you deny half the things written by the apostles. No, none of that. If you embrace this book and you really believe it, you believe what these apostles said. You know what they said? My Lord and my God. You believe that? They said He's Lord. They said He's God. You believe that? You know what Jesus said? You know what they recorded Jesus said? Unless you forsake all that you have, you can't be my disciples. You guys believe that? You really throw in with that. I mean, you throw in. You throw in your life, your soul, your all on Him and His promises and what He came to accomplish. You know what? You make it into this group that Jesus prayed for. This doesn't have anything to do with whether you had some religious experience, you felt fuzzy feelings, you had a dream, you got healed at one time, you got stirred up in a certain message and, and you know you walked down that aisle or, or whatever. The real issue is this. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as expressed by these apostles that came through their words? If you fit that description, then I want you to listen in and hear what Jesus prays for you. And here's, look at verse 22. We read this, but you know, you know what happens? We can become Christians and then we, we, we can feel it's just not very glorious. Oh, look at my life. What am I really doing? I mean, I'm nothing special. I still fight and have these battles with sin. But look, look what Jesus says. The glory that you have given me, I have. Not This is not glorification in the future. This is glorification now. Folks, from one degree of glory to another, there is a glorification that is taking place now. The glory you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I mean, I just say, what's that? You know what? We are dealing with things that to some measure are beyond human understanding. The glory you have given me. You know what glory is? What's glory? We think of the shine, the brightness, the magnificence, the excellence, the honor. God gave some sort of honor, some sort of exaltation. Some, I mean, we think about Christ being the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance, that's the idea of brightness radiating, the beams of the sun radiating out. And How does He give it to Him? Well, apparently, it's some kind of glory that Christ didn't have before it was given to Him. It undoubtedly has something to do with His humanity. Listen, when you consider Him as human, He grew in wisdom. Just as He grew in stature, He grew in wisdom. As a human, He didn't know the time of His second coming. 
There was a place for Jesus to grow in what he knew, to grow even in his relationship with his Father. I mean, there are mysteries here, but somewhere, somehow, some glory was imparted to Christ that then he takes, almost you can imagine, like just a ball of fire, and he bestows it on his people. And that's what's being said here. You can't get away from that. I've given to them. And you know what? You know what that means? This is is God talking to God. That means God the Father and God the Son. They look at the child of God and we are glorious in their eyes because a glory has been given to us. You just can't get away from that. Well, what does that mean? Well, I would say this. You know, I've seen where different people kind of dream up things. They come up with their ideas and they're not directly from the text. I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna really define what this is, the natural thing seems to be to take the context into consideration. So notice this. What I want you to see is that I think that verse 22 and verse 23 are actually the same basic thought. And and notice Notice why I would think that. Let's just read them. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. That. In Greek, that's henna. It it means there's a purpose. We have a purpose clause here. What's happening? The glory you've given me, I gave to them for a purpose. What purpose? This purpose. That they may be one, even as we are one. I am them, you and me, that, there it is again, that they may become perfectly one. You see, in both of them, the reason is the same. It is this oneness. And I think that what is happening is verse 23 enlightens us to what the glory is. The glory was first with the Father given to the Son. And that would be the Father in the Son. And then it's given to us, and that would be the Father in the Son being in us. And both contain that marker, that 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 word, that, that hits us with that purpose. They both point to this oneness. Christ gets glory that He gives to us in order that we be one. Christ in us, the Father in Christ, in order that we may be perfectly one. I think that it's basically saying, you can see how it corresponds. The glory that the Father gives Jesus is you in me. This is Jesus talking. It's, It's the Father and the Son. And Christ as man had the eternal Father come take up residence in Him. Listen to what He says. Right in this upper room discourse, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in Me. So you want to get this. Jesus is a man. He walked around with God the Father dwelling in Him. And, And we probably, some of you have heard these verses in Colossians. In Him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 119. 2.9, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells 
bodily. So what happens is Jesus is indwelt by the Father. He passes that glory to us, which equates to I, Jesus speaking, I in them. God dwells in the Son. Then the Son indwelt by the Father, he passes that glory to his followers by dwelling in those who believe what the apostles teach. Christ in us is the glory. We don't We don't see it. Our heads don't glow because it's a reality. But brethren, if you've been genuinely saved, you know what happened? You came face to face at some point with the Apostles' Doctrine. That Apostles' Doctrine set forth this Christ. You somewhere came to recognize your need. You came to be that sick man that needed a doctor. You came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what happens is you called upon the Lord and then such changes took place in you. You were a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. You are now born again, born by this Spirit that is like the wind that blows in the trees. And you know what? Do you know what the difference is due to, it is due to Christ coming and taking up residence. We might say, well, we're indwelt by the Spirit. Yes, it's the Spirit of Christ. And this this is no small thing here. Brethren, what we need to recognize is this. Look at at 1723. I am them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Literally, in order that they may have been brought completely to oneness. You see, the oneness that Christ is asking His Father for is more than all of us agreeing that we shouldn't go watch an R-rated movie. See, sometimes we think, well, you know, what unifies us? Is it, is it, is it just all being reformed? Is it, it oh, we're good Calvinists? What, what kind of oneness is this? It's the oneness of some kind of inness. I-N dash N-E-S-S. This idea of being in gets thrown around here. And, and listen again, we're listening in and we're hearing God speak to God. And isn't it amazing how this kind of thing, what is that? What does it mean to be in? Some kind of real living, I mean, so personal that it's patterned after and based upon the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. That's what we have here. God Himself cannot conceive of us apart from Christ. This is the source of all of our blessings. But I want you to just look at verse 23. I in them, you in me. We can hear that. Seven words in English. One syllable. I mean, those are not I them, you, me, a bunch of pronouns. Not difficult. In, preposition, and, conjunction. One syllable, right? But when you put them all together like that, I mean, what in the world does it mean? I'm calling this inness. I mean, this sort of language. Look at, look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, See, see where the oneness is again? See, where it's, see what it's connected to? This glory that produces all this oneness? Just as you, Father, are in me, 
And then this is crazy. The Father's in the Son and the Son's in the Father. That they also may be in us. Wait. Wait. Didn't it say, I am them in verse 23? How's it in verse 21? We're in them. I mean, you see what's happening? There's this mutual, simultaneous, reciprocal inness. Father's in Christ. Christ with the Father in Him is in us. But the Christ who has the Father in Him is also Himself in the Father. We who have Christ in us with the Father in Him are also in both of them. This concept is so unusual and it is so absolutely different to any of us. Jesus knows this. I mean, folks, we have idea about spatial relationships or we have ideas about preposition. Preposition means at or in or out. I mean, we have this idea of spatial ideas in. You're in me and I'm in you. I mean, I look, I get in my car. When I go home today, I get in the car. If I, if I look, turn to my wife and say, the car's in me, she's going to say, what are you talking about? We don't talk that way. I mean, it's, it's like, I might put my finger in your mouth. You put yours in. Do I say, I'm in you, you're in me? I mean, it's, it's Siamese twins. I mean, they might grow into each other. You might think about two clouds or two phantoms. They somehow are, are crossing each other, pass through each other. But what is this? And look, my best shot is this, that God is in us. What does that mean? Well, we're indwelt by Him. That's real. Now, God is everywhere. So to say that God indwells us means much like this. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. God's dwelling place is with man. Wait, doesn't God dwell everywhere? It has to do with manifestation. It has to do with God exercising His power and His influence and making Himself present in a way that we have a sensation of. But listen, listen to what God says in His Word. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits, where does He inhabit? Eternity whose name is holy, I dwell where? In the high and holy place. And also with Him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. But then, see, the thing is, the Father and the Son are also indwelt by us. So God is in us, but we're also in Him. That they also may be in us us and i i just i found a verse deuteronomy 33 27 the eternal god is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms it's like god here's here's the thing what you want to see is dwelling place talk he dwells in us and we dwell in him and it's a mutual reality and look the lord is speaking just massively glorious realities this, this presses us. It, it makes us grapple with our limitations about just what is being spoken about here. Look at verse 23. I in them, you in me. That, that is 
what's behind our perfect unity. And I know it says become. We're definitely moving into this more and more. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, are you, are you grasping that? Loved them? God the Father loves us even as God the Father has loved His only begotten Son? I mean, are you a Christian? What does this say about you? How has God loved Jesus? Well, I would say this. What can we say about love? From this text, the context here, I would say we can say two things about love. What two things can we say? One, look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see... Now, don't get this. My glory that You have given Me because You loved Me. Do you see what love does? It bestows glory. And this just made me think of Romans 8.18. I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing. Listen to this. With the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know what? When I preached through Romans, you know what I saw about that preposition? That preposition is sometimes in some translations, in us. Now get this. The glory that is revealed to us or the glory that is revealed in us. And as I really began to search, I saw that that preposition means toward us. And there's one translation that actually uses it. I saw one commentator that says the reason there's differences is because in English we don't have a simple pronoun that captures it. It is the idea of a glory that comes at us, that we see, it comes toward us, and it actually swallows us up so that it is now in us. You have to recognize that this is what love does. Love is its going to show the glory, and it's going to pull us in and swallow us into it. Brethren, this is no light matter to be a Christian. The kind, of com- the, the kind of language that is happening between these two persons of Godhead ought to just blow us away. But then love does something else. Notice verse 26. And I'll, I'll actually pick up in 25. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. Now you just tuck that away. The Son says, I know You. But go to 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to do that. That the love. I notice this is another thing that love does. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Lovers reveal themselves to each other. Because what you want to get is this, the that. I made known to them your name that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Are you grasping that? You see what Jesus is saying? Father, I have shown them who you are at the deepest, most intimate levels. That this love that you have for me may be in them. And I just, I look at this and I say, you know what? Jesus says in 25, I know you. 
Love, no, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Lovers reveal themselves to each other intimately. How does the Father love the Son? I mean, He gives Him glory. He makes Himself known to Jesus. That's, that's mysteries here. What is God's love to the Son like? I'll tell you this, it's eternal, it's perfect, it's unchangeable. Christian, He loves you even as He loves the Son. Verse 23. Do you hear this? I mean, think about this. Think about what's being said in all these verses. Christ's glory is yours. Christ lives in you. You live in Him. God's love for Christ flows toward you. Is it a small thing to be a Christian? It's a small thing if your type of Christianity is miserably deficient and small and unbiblical. If all you've done is taken it up, if your religion is something you've done, then it's, it's pathetic. And you of all people in the end will prove to be most miserable. You want this. You want this kind of Christianity. I mean, we got to begin to fathom why our joy can be fulfilled back in verse 13. No matter what our circumstances are. Remember what Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, Luke 6 says. Brethren, I've said this before, there's going to be a day when even the British people are going to jump up and down and lose, lose uh, their capacities for decency when, when the reality of these things flow in upon you. I mean, this, the Savior prays for us and we're allowed to listen to these things that we might realize just exactly what is going on and all the glory and all the love. So, verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. These know that you have sent me. They know. We know. Can anybody say, yes, I know. You know what I find? All the scientists, well, they got their theories. They got their theories about what's true. Well, then send the James Webb telescope out. Oh, now we're not even sure about the Big Bang. Hey, probably looking like it didn't even happen. You know what? They've got all their theories. The medical community, they've got their theories. Look at what doctors believed back in the 60s. Look what they believe now. I'm not saying there aren't advances in both science and technology and microbiology, but you know what? Men, men, at every, any given time, men think they know everything. But, but you know what? They're changing all the time. They're absolutely changing all the time. And, you know, there's, there's actually something very acceptable in the world like that. I mean, you know, the world applauds us when we're searching and we change our minds all the time. You know, the world doesn't get bent out of shape over the scientific community, over the medical community, when they all of a sudden come along and tell us something diametrically opposed to what was said before. But you know what? They'll curse us to the core if we say we found the answer with certainty. You know what this says? These know that you've sent me. We know that. 
We know God sent His Son into this. We know that the eternal Son of God had glory with His Father in eternity past and God sent Him in the fullness of time. He sent Him into this world and He was born of a virgin maiden in Bethlehem. And you know what? He came. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He was raised up out of that grave and after 40 days He ascended back to His Father. And folks, we know it. There is a certainty. They knew it. We know it. How do we know it? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that He is? Can you say like Peter? <laughs> You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Well, you know what, Peter? Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you and hasn't revealed it to us either. My Father. My Father. So, we're persuaded. There's no fiction. God showed us these things. What do we have to do with all the mockers and the false religion out there and the disputers and the deniers? Notice this, verse 26. I made known to them your name. Ah, oh, His name. You know what it's like in Scripture. Name is not just a label. In Scripture, names are descriptions. They're identifiers. Moses said, you know what? When the people ask me, what am I supposed to tell them the name of our God is? Remember Jacob? He's wrestling. What's your name? Manoah, he's all staggered by this. What's your name? I always wanted to know his name. God's people want to know his name. What is his name? Because his name, when God manifested his name to Moses, he manifested his glory. And notice this. I will continue to make it known. Don't you love that? There's more to come. There's more revelation, more glory. And you know what? With more glory, what does there come? More awe, more worship, more love. I mean, the more we see who He is, the more lovable, the more, the, the more desirable that He becomes. I mean, and, and what's going to happen today? When's this going to happen? Notice this. I will continue to make it known. When? Today? Tomorrow? Yes, right out into an infinity. Heaven will be the Lord saying to us, hey, you know what? You're the also's. Come over here and get the group of these 11. You're the guys I prayed for. You know what? Let's go on out in eternity together. Hey, guys, want to see something new about your father? Yeah, Lord, show us. I mean, that's what it's saying. He's going to come to us after a billion ages and say, guys, I got something new for you today. Something really glorious about the Father. It's like, how can there even be more? It's just going to keep making it known. On and on and on and on. Something we've never seen before about our Father. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And it seems to reiterate now, brethren, we got about 15 minutes. What is it that's really being... Th these are the descriptions of us. We are these people that have had this glory given to us. We are these people that are in Him and He's in us. We're the people that are loved by the Father with the same love. These are the descriptions of us. But what is really being prayed for? That they be kept, but kept where? 
we see it. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, that they may all be one. Who? Well, those who believed through the apostles' word. Look, recognize this. God is not ever appealing to us to go hold hands with people who deny what's in this book. Don't think this is a call for some kind of ecumenical gathering together with people. Brethren, we're not holding hands with those who deny that word. Just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, they in us. It's a unity with others in the Father, in the Son. And it's all got to do with the apostles' doctrine. We're, we're people that are in that kind of doctrinal unity. It's through a unity of teaching. And this is where God inhabits. Jesus said things like, you're proved to be my disciples if my word abides in you. And the thing is, you know what? We've got this unity with others. Skin color doesn't matter. We've got black, we've got white, we've got things in between. And folks, you know what? We can hold hands and we are brothers and we are sisters in Christ. And it doesn't matter. This is, this is not, there's, there's no skin color differences or caste systems or social status or rank. There's no, no wealth differences or tattoos. Um, they're not the issue. Any of you ever seen Sinclair Ferguson sit with Mez McConnell? Do you know who that guy is? Mez McConnell is this guy that was in prison and he's just a wild guy and God saved him. And, and they're both Scottish. They have that in common. Their big commonality, their unity, is that they both know Christ. I've seen both these guys on stage together. I mean, one, he's got like his, his rapper hat on, and the other guy, I mean, Sinclair Ferguson is the most proper Scottish guy. And I mean, these two, I love it. But folks, background, different temperament, different personality. But you know what the issue is between Mez and Sinclair? embrace apostolic doctrine. They believe the essentials, the heart, over against, you know what, two people in the same church. You can have two people in the same church where within the same walls. We hear the same preaching. You may even carry the same kind of Bible as the guy that sits next to you. you got these two people. Maybe you live in the same neighborhood. Maybe you dress in very similar. You have the same accent. But something's wrong. What is it? Listen to Lloyd-Jones. Is it not a fact, my friends, that we who are Christians recognize one another the moment we meet? You see what he's saying? This isn't something that we necessarily have to fight for. This is something that Jesus prayed for his people, and it's a reality. And you can be anywhere in the world, and you can encounter anybody, different gender, different skin color, they come from a different class, different amount of wealth in their family. They've got, they speak a different language. And you can come face to face with these people. And he says, we recognize one another the moment we meet. It's the greatest privilege in my life as a minister of a church that as I stand in the vestry to meet the people coming in to see me, often people whom I've never seen in my life before, that I at once recognize them. I know them. I know that they're brothers and sisters of mine. I do not know where they come from. They come from all parts of the world. And yet at once I know them. And I feel that I have known them for years. Some people come 
into me and they say, I am glad to meet you. I come from India or Australia, America or some other country, and I'm a Congregationalist or a Methodist or a Baptist, and immediately I feel there is no union. Others come and they don't tell me whether they're Baptist, etc. They just come in and say, what a wonderful Lord we have. Thank God this is the same gospel here as in my home country and my hometown. Immediately I'm one with them. We're related. We're the same family. I feel that I have known them all my life and that if I were to meet them again in the future, I would never be more close to them than at this first moment. That is the unity our Lord talks about. You see, many read John 17 and they say, ah, there's so much disunity in the world. We've got to fix this. We need to get rid of denominations. We need to embrace the Pope. And that's not out in the left field, folks. You remember when R.C. Sproul was alive? This Catholic Protestant, Catholic Evangelical Accord. I mean, brethren, this, this kind of stuff happens all the time. We've got old hands with everybody that claims to be a Christian. No, we don't. It's not, it, it is not our task to make sure that Jesus' prayer comes to pass as, as though he's praying to us to make it happen. This, he's, he's asked his Father to make it happen, and you can be sure that this prayer is answered, and he's going to make it happen. I like the story. I, I like A.B. Simpson. Simpson started the same denomination that Tozer was a part of. You know why he did? A.B. Simpson was a Canadian, and this guy was, uh, he came down to the United States, I believe he pastored in uh, Kentucky, and then he was called the 13th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. You know why he didn't stay there? You know why he started a church denomination called the Missionary and Christian Alliance, or Christian and Missionary Alliance, CMA? You know why he started that? He was pastoring this real plush 13th Street Presbyterian Church. Guess what happened? A hundred Italian immigrants got saved. And the folks in his church didn't want them there. They're too poor. They're too dirty. They're immigrants. They're going to mess up our church. He resigned. A.B. Simpson resigned as their pastor, and he went and started this new church right next to the uh, park in New York City. What do you say? What do you say? I'll tell you what eternity is going to prove. The vast majority of those people at 13th Street didn't know the Lord. Because, brethren, there's a unity. I'll tell you this. God brings somebody in from the prison ministry some hardcore felon. But all of a sudden, his heart is on fire for Christ. I don't know how you think. God fill the church with those kind of... I want to see the rich and the poor, the black and the white, people from all different directions of life and have God bring them together because that's what heaven's going to be like. And I think Martin Lloyd-Jones... Brethren, one of the reasons that I would never have closed communion in the church is this reason. I recognize some people come in here and take the Lord's Supper who don't know the Lord. But what I don't want to do is cut off people from outside this church who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Jesus prayed. And what He prayed for is real. You know what? When I read 
I know there are a lot of Calvinists who look at John Wesley like he's the Antichrist. I can tell you this, one volume of his three volumes into his biography, and it's like this, I love the guy. Say what you want. I, I would just say certain minor things aside. I'm, I'm one with that man. Verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. You see, he wants the world to believe. Us, one in doctrine, we're one in glory, one in being loved by God as he loves Christ, one in intimacy, all this unity, God's designing a church to basically the, that people in the world would believe, come to realize. You know who it reminds me of? Bunyan. Remember John Bunyan? He talked about how he was walking along and he's thinking, oh, he was just such a, the religious man. And if there was any holy man in the world, it was him. And he said he came walking up and there's these two old crows, he called them, these two old ladies. And they're over there talking and he thought, well, he's going he's gonna to hear the best gossip in the town. And he said he began to listen to these. They, he was behind the hedge and they couldn't see him and they talked about such things as he didn't expect and suddenly they were all in a glow he said it was like they were on the slopes of a sunlit mountain and he's standing over there cold shivering suddenly he recognized he's on the outside and he doesn't have any unity like they have oh he's the religious guy and he prided himself in all of it but he can't even relate there's no unity and he felt himself on the outside and came under conviction you see it's to convict the world that they they may believe. But then there's more. Notice this, verse 23. May become perfectly one. Perfect. Not perfect yet, but God's moving us in that way. Despite an appearance of disunity. But brethren, why is there an appearance of disunity? You have to remember what Scripture says. Have you never read this before? That there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You know what? The world looks at us like Muslims love to say it. Or you know what? Catholicism loves to pride itself on, well, we're Catholics and we're all unified. Anybody that knows anything about the Catholic Church knows it's not unified. But here's the thing. They look and they say, well, you know, look at all these Protestants. They can't get along. Brethren, the fact is that those that are genuine among us can get along with Methodists, get along with Baptists, can get along with Congregationals, get along with Presbyterians, if there's this unity. One of the reasons why the whole thing looks so fractured is because there is one who comes along and spreads seed. Jesus plants his seed and the devil's planting his. Paul said there's got to be factions, folks. But you know what? The factions are not factions between genuine Christians. They're factions between the true and those not true. So, with glorified senses, we have a really glorious thing here. 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, and what's that? That's like saying to the to the thief on the cross this day you'll be with me in paradise it means we're with him it, that's how you see his glory you don't this is not like seeing the glory of a star that's a million miles a million light years and far more than that up in the sky it's not like we're way off in the distance and we're just basically seeing this remote light like 
like you see like when you're going through the mountains and you know there's kind of a city set up on a hill and you see it off in the distance this is not it jesus is saying i want them to behold my glory and and with glorified senses we know what it's like if you're john and you see jesus like in the book of revelation chapter one will you fall like a dead man but see we're going to have glorified senses we won't be falling down like a dead man we will be able to look full in his glorified face and one of the things is we're going to be so transformed at that moment that when we see him we're going to be like him we are going to resonate with the same sort of glory. And in a glorified fashion, I mean, remember, we're His bride. He has fashioned us to be that, to behold full in His glorified face. I mean, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? I mean, we're going to be mesmerized. We're going to be speechless. Do you see what He's really saying? Father, I desire this. Like, I don't have this desire that they be cast in hell or be left on some planet way out there. And No, you've given them to me. I want them where I am. I want them right where I am because I want them to see my glory that you've given me because of this love that you had for me before the foundation of the world. And we're going to be amazed. We're going to be dazzled. What is this? You know what? It's just going to be, this is it. This is everything. This is the desire of my heart. We're going to view it all unveiled. It's not going to be like Isaiah 53 where, where you, you, know, you squint and you say, ah, there's no former majesty in him. It's not going to be like that at all. And oh, those outside Christ, they're going to, this beauty is going to be absolutely terrifying. Can you imagine living in that glory, time without end? Jesus', Jesus desire, what he's praying for here is never going to be disappointed. This is going to come to, to pass. How empty it is to not be a Christian. And how little, I mean, think of yourselves. Do you think among the ransomed host, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands, and the seraphim, when we were singing earlier today, holy, 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 you've got the seraphim and the cherubim, cherubim and just singing forever and ever and ever the praises of the lamb and of him who sits upon that throne him christ as this lamb who was slain and he's redeemed us and saved us by his blood what a promise all this is what a hope what glory christ in us the hope of this glory we just say blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ I don't know what else to say about that chapter. It is just it, like it, I think it's one of the hardest things I've had to preach on in a long time because there's, it's just it, it blows my mind and it's just it, it, it's like a conversation that is so unworldly and so unlike we talk. But Father, I pray that something, some glory would just have leaked out some glory would glorious beam of truth would penetrate the eyes and the hearts of of those who've heard today we pray for revelation we pray for what christ prayed for that your name would be revealed to us more and more and more 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.